Hello and welcome back to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is the final episode of the podcast first season. We'll be taking a break for a couple of months, but don't worry, we'll be back in the new year. In the meantime, you can listen back to any episodes you might have missed, or get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for season two. Right, on with the show. This week, my guest is business psychologist and founder of Equalital, Jess Hornsby. Jess is on a mission to create a better working world, using behavioral science and design thinking methodology to create workplaces where people thrive. She is also a member of the Good Work Board, where she leads on our approach to assessment, allowing us to identify talent without relying on educational attainment. Jess, welcome to the Good Work Podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm delighted that we've made this work. One of the reasons that I particularly wanted to make sure that we got Jess on this first season of the Good Work Podcast is because Jess, as well as being an amazing person who does really interesting work, is also a member of the Good Work Board and has been really involved in developing the work that we're doing as well. And I'm really pleased that we've got Jess here to talk to us a little bit more about that. So Jess, in your own words, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. Uh, So I am an organisational psychologist or a business psychologist, depending on the type of client that I'm talking to. And really, that means I am obsessed with all things leadership, culture, assessment, diversity, inclusion, anything that just helps make workplaces better to be in. I'm on a mission to make the world of work better. And that usually boils down to culture and leadership um, and everything in between that I've just described. So you'll find me getting involved in all of that space with my clients. So I I worked in the engineering industry for about, I think, 12 or 13 years altogether, which I always struggle to think about that because I just don't feel old enough to say that I worked anywhere for (laughs) over 10 years but I guess age does catch up on you Um, and you know I learned so much in that industry and a lot of of what we're going to talk about today I think I took learning from that industry and it was a fantastic place to be but I got an itch I wanted to do what I do across different industries across public and private smaller organizations and so almost two years ago year and a half ish I left corporate life and started up my own organization called Equalital. And since then, I've been working with some amazing clients, I have to say, on things such as culture, leadership, performance. Uh, I'm really interested in how organizations understand and conceptualize performance and, and the impact that can have on diversity and inclusion. So I'm sure we'll get into all of that today. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. And where do you think the interest in DNI came from for you? Um, how did you end up doing the sort of work that you do? So I think I didn't plan, I don't necessarily see myself as working in DNI as a subsection of a function. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm driven by the value of fairness. And I always have been around just treating people well and being fair and giving opportunities to as many people as possible. And as such, you know, when I've worked on things like assessment design or cultures and inclusive cultures, you can't touch those subjects without becoming aware of diversity and inclusion. So within occupational psychology, you learn about bias and the impact that bias has within organizations. And 
within the field of organizational psychology as well, you see the organization is really a system. And when those systems are designed, they can be designed in quite a flawed way. And actually, when you start to see that, you can't unsee it. And that's where I mm -hmm. feel that I got to within organizations where I could see the flaws in these systems and I couldn't unsee it. And they were they were incredibly unfair in many ways and weren't inclusive. And so as such, I have found a network of people that work in this space and continue to work alongside diversity and inclusion specialists um I mean the term wasn't even used five years ago even yeah. and often it was used if you did have diversity and inclusion used within organizations it was within the corporate social responsibility area of a business rather than baked into the actual strategy of a business um, whereas now you see it much more uh, center stage or you should see it more center stage I know some organizations have still got a long way to go on that but so it's 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 definitely moving in the right direction. And I'd say that now the term is used much more and it's more understood, but I've probably worked in this space ever since I graduated without necessarily calling it that. And do you think that your own life experience and background has influenced your interest in this sort of work, but also your own experiences at work and, you know, having spent time in quite large corporate environments as well as running your own business? Well, I thought about this when you talked to me about my own story of social mobility. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about actually, what is my story? And mm -hmm. at first I thought, well, it's not really that interesting. But then I started to break it up. I thought, actually, I do have a, a story in this space. And so I'm from South Wales, which is an area that isn't depending on what you do, but in most career spaces isn't steeped in opportunity. And I grew up with a working class in a working class background my mum is a dental nurse she left school at 15 to train as a dental nurse she's still doing that job today at 66 she's due to retire this year mm. and really what she did was an apprenticeship it wasn't called that mm. then it was just learning on the job and got thrown in at a very young age doing a job but that was really an apprenticeship of her time and um, my dad is a musician a fantastic musician and he turned to teaching and then later on in his career he turned from teaching to leading uh, within the leadership team of a music service so he went from musician to leader and my grandmother so my dad's mum was the head teacher of a school and that was pretty unheard of in those times mm -hmm. she was the breadwinner of her family she was a leader in every sense and you know, I think back to my nan and, you know, she had a huge impact on me. And it was your question that really got me thinking about this because, you know, she, in the fifties, you know, a woman that was going to work in a leadership role that was the breadwinner of the family, you know, my granddad was a bricklayer. So my nan very much, the, the income was reliant on my nan's income. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm super proud of her when I think about that. And that she would have had to overcome quite a lot to get into that space. But also she was the head teacher of a, a school. It was a Catholic school in quite a deprived area. And she, it was before the days of uh, breakfast clubs or wraparound mm -hmm. care that you get today and, and and she saw children that were turning up to school that hadn't been fed and that didn't have school uniforms their parents just couldn't afford it you know they weren't they weren't coming to school in a in a place where they were ready to learn and so she took them under her wing and she really you know she fed them out of her own pocket and she had uniforms to one side that she would give to children that needed it and thankfully today there's systems in place that tend to 
catch this yeah. these children but actually back then there wasn't and you know she cared deeply about giving children a really good start in life regardless of where they were from or or the types of um opportunities that would have been open to them she gave them opportunities and I still speak to her ex-pupils today who only say great things about her and I went to uh, myself I went to a, a I'm not religious but I went to a Catholic school I think because my nan was the head of a Catholic um, primary mm-hmm. school and I ended up going to a Catholic secondary school but as such what that meant was Catholic schools don't have catchment areas like a local school would mm-hmm. so I went to school with children from all sorts of backgrounds you know some very wealthy children and some children who had very very little so I was exposed to that diversity, that economic, uh, social economic diversity, very, very young. And I could see the impact that that had. And I had friends from, you know, every walk of life as a result. I actually uh, left South Wales to study. And this is another part, I think, of the social mobility story is I didn't leave to do psychology. I left, I wanted to be a dancer. Mm -hmm. And you cannot be a dancer in South Wales. You know, I think you can today. There's a lot more opportunity there today. But when I was leaving, London was the place to be. You know, if you wanted to be a dancer, I used to go to London in my summer holidays and do dance summer schools. And I could see that actually this is where the richness of opportunity was if you wanted to be a dancer and you had to be in that space. So when I applied for further education, I was looking to move to London. I ended up getting on a a dance degree moving to London and that's what took me out of South Wales because I just couldn't have done what I did there Um, but I think about psychology and the work that I do now when I graduated in occupational psychology even that space you couldn't have really done in South Wales I think it's getting Mm -hmm. better in fact I know it's getting better and because of virtual and hybrid working it's more Mm -hmm. likely that you can live in South Wales and still do the type of job that I do but Back then, I needed to be within the commuting distance of London because that's where all the big corporations were and or at least in the southeast of England. So that's where I've settled. And I think if I was going through that same route today, that might be different. I don't think you have to be in the southeast anymore. And I hope that's changing. But certainly when I was studying, that was that was the way you needed to be. So two careers, quite different dancer, Mm -hmm. psychologist, both would have taken me out of South Wales I think to be able to do what I do which is quite interesting when you think about it because you know I don't know if I would have moved out I don't know I don't know if I would have just had an itch anyway to get out of the hometown yeah I I arguably didn't have to move to London in order to do the sort of work that I wanted to do I think a lot of why I did was because it was an exciting place to be and I I've always had that kind of desire to live in a big city but I think that that brain drain thing is is really pertinent and I hope and would pontificate that hybrid and flexible working is going to enable the world to change when it comes to things like that but certainly when it comes to young people and opportunity I'm really keen that as good work we we go to young people where they are as much as we can which is why as you know Jess like it's part of our strategy to run programs outside of London in the near future fingers crossed yeah so as part of the good work team your focus is on assessment methods and models can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and how we effectively are able to mitigate bias from assessment and why that's really important yeah of course so when when we talked about 
me coming onto the board and when I found out about good work I was really drawn to the fact that you were looking at other ways in which we can judge or deem young people as being having potential within the workplace and the reason that kind of piqued my interest is because I have worked within the assessment design space for a number of years and as I talked about earlier where you start to see systems that are fundamentally flawed and it's really hard to unsee that what I've seen is that many, many jobs are designed in a way that just cuts out many people from the talent process unnecessarily. So, of course, you need to have criteria on a job because certain types of factors make it more likely that somebody's going to be successful in a job. But what I saw organisations doing is putting criteria in without really understanding whether it genuinely predicted performance or not. And some of those were things like qualifications, even qualifications, they only tell you so much. So I wrote an article, which is on my website around postcode versus genetic code, what really does determine our potential. And in that I explore the, for example, you might have two people who have done their A-levels. Um, they've both come out with, I don't know, three grade A's and, uh, but person uh, a has had no parental support, wasn't fed a good breakfast before school. Mm. You know, I always talk about breakfast because I think being well, having good nutrition is so important to learning. You know, so that person may have had no parental support, no uh, opportunities presented to them. They might have had poor teachers even, you know, you just don't, there's so many factors that could go yeah. into what could make somebody either successful or unsuccessful at their qualifications. And then person B might have had fantastic parental support, really good nutrition, brilliant teachers who went above and beyond, and they, they came out with the, the same grades. So the CV only tells us a portion of that story. What the CV doesn't tell us is that person A has had to overcome so much to achieve yeah. the same grade. And so the CV is flawed, you know, as a tool that is used at the heart of most recruitment is completely flawed it doesn't tell us the whole story. Um, and likewise, you might have somebody that hasn't done their A-levels, but actually has potential. They just didn't have the opportunities. They maybe had to care for mm -hmm. somebody during that time and they or they just weren't encouraged in the right way, but they have all of the potential to have done really well. So there's a whole pool of people that have huge potential to do well within organizations that we aren't tapping into which is why I often get very frustrated by the term war on talent. I know we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. You know, the term war on talent was coined, I think, in 1997. And it has been used ever since I've entered the, the business world, which was in, I think, 2010. There can't possibly have been a war on talent since 2010. I just refuse to believe it. I think <laughs> now... Now, I think I looked at some data and I think now is the only time there might potentially be a war on talent because the number of unemployment has dropped and the number of jobs has increased. So I think now we could possibly legitimately use that term. But I also believe the word war is far too dramatic. Um, I think if you feel in your organisations that there's a war on talent, then perhaps you're not looking at the right criteria or thinking broadly enough about what talent actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And to bring that to life a little bit, you know, if you are an organisation who have 
criteria on your job specs that say you know must have five years experience must have a degree from from a particular university my question is how predictive of performance are those criteria and if you can't if you don't know the answer to that then should you really have that criteria in there Um, Mm -hmm. and also context is important so I'm not saying that qualifications and experience aren't interesting and useful to know but actually, if you've got a team, for example, of very experienced people, do you need experience on this 10th team member that's coming in? You know, what is the context? Do you need everybody to have that amount of experience? Or can you take some, some risks on people that have less experience, but might demonstrate some more human qualities that, you know, are conducive to success in the role? So it's not as black and white as mm-hmm. job descriptions and CVs allow us to think that it is. It's far more complex. Um, but people don't seem to want they want quick what I find in hiring is people want really quick and dirty answers to Mm. just find me someone quickly and as a result they're really cutting off huge pools of people that could be great for their business yeah well it's one of those things too you know I always think it's seems so bizarre to me when you see on a job description you know we want people to have experience using a tool that takes less than a week to learn how to use and you just think why like (laughs) why like linkedin <laughs> yeah exactly. must have experience of linkedin and it's like hang on a minute most people born after a certain date will be able to figure it out within you know if they're tech savvy they'll figure it out yeah. these, these are tools that are built to be intuitive so yeah. you should be. yeah all things like crm systems right like yeah most people can figure out how to use a crm system yeah. after a certain amount of time or yeah. support yeah 100 why do you think it is that hiring managers and talent people are often so averse to doing away with the more traditional approaches so looking at cvs for example and using metrics like an arts degree from a decade ago as making somebody more qualified for a job than somebody else yeah i i don't it's not a simple answer but i will the word tradition that you've used is poignant because yeah a lot of the systems that are designed today were uh, that are used today were designed at a very different time so you know the whole recruitment process it needs to be completely turned on its head it's been in place you know the whole cv uh, sifting type process has been in place for many many years but if you take a role i'm just going to pick a role such as a salesperson for example 15 20 years ago the roles of a sale the role of a salesperson the more you knew, say you were a car salesperson, the more mm-hmm. you knew about that car, the more likely you were to sell that car. But actually, because knowledge is so accessible now because of the internet and technology, that actually most people have Googled every technical aspect of that car before they even decide to go and buy it. So actually now what makes a good salesperson is the ability to create a trusted relationship with somebody. It's not how much knowledge they know. Um, Still, if you look at sales roles, if you just pluck some JDs or some jobs off LinkedIn, you'll still see a Mm. number of more traditional organizations will look for the knowledge factor before determining whether somebody is suitable for a role within a particular sales role, for example. That's just one example of where Mm -hmm. knowledge is, I believe, over overweighted in the recruitment process because like you say most people can access knowledge now at a speed that was only dreamt about two decades ago but actually we're still using the same processes that we use then 
Um, yeah. so things need to change, but it's it, it's slow. It's a real slow burn, and it's companies like Goodwork that are really mm-hmm. challenging that traditional route to organizations and t- traditional conceptualizations of talent and what talent looks like which is why I was so keen to be part of it. Thank you. So if you were listening to this podcast and you were a hiring manager or a talent acquisition person, what could you be doing to remove some of that bias from your assessment processes? You know, what are the things that that you would say people need to be prioritizing? Yeah, that's a really good question because a lot of people are doing a lot of things because people's intentions are to get better at this. So most people, recruiters, hiring managers, leaders, candidates, all recognize that maybe it's not a great and fair process, but a lot of people, uh, I think, are focusing their energy in perhaps the wrong places. So uh, Mm. I see lots of work being done on neutralizing the language within JDs, which is great. Definitely Mm -hmm. don't stop doing that. But that isn't, I talk about organizational systems is where usually the bias happens. So for me, it's looked deeper than that. And if there's people on the uh, listening to this that are responsible for hiring or there's hiring managers or recruiters, then my advice would be to look at the criteria. So this is the one thing I'm working with, with you, Felicity, on with good work is what is the criteria that we decide Um, that we think is conducive to potential and performance because that is the it's in the criteria that you're going to really open up or close your talent pools Mm -hmm. and so yes keep doing the neutralization of the languages of your jds and advertising in more diverse places all of that stuff is great but if you're doing that without looking at the criteria of which you're deciding good looks like you're kind of only tinkering on the outside. You need to start with the criteria. And that's where good work has started. We've looked at yeah. the criteria that we really believe. Um, and it's the human skills. You know, we mm-hmm. I call it, I listened to a podcast by Simon Sinek last week and he renamed soft skills because I've always hated the term soft skills. <laughs> it, I think it does such a disservice to them, but he renamed them human skills. So I will forever mm-hmm. call them human skills now. And it's really looking at the human skills that are required to be successful within early years of a career. Um, And that is what we are using. That's what we're assessing. And it doesn't matter. We're not looking at qualifications. It doesn't matter anybody. It doesn't. What's the word? It's agnostic of previous experience or where you grew up or what your background is. Anybody from any walk of life can can demonstrate the criteria that we're assessing so it really doesn't discriminate in that sense yeah absolutely so something else I'm really interested in your take on is because I talk a lot about this with recruiters is you know this difference between contextual and blind recruitment so I think when people are coming into the process of trying to mitigate bias from their recruitment processes you kind of see people go down one of two routes and often you see people go down the blind recruitment route which is we're going to disaggregate information we're going to take things like names away which you know can be a really great thing to do and we're going to you know disaggregate all the questions from one another we're going to use things like tests like potentially psychometric tests Mm -hmm. to measure somebody in a way that that we think is unbiased And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you see people looking at contextual recruitment, which I would argue is is pretty much what we do at Good Work, which is actually we need as much information about this person as possible in order to make a really holistic assessment 
of their potential and what they've done so far in the context of their life and experience and situation. What would you say with your psychologist hat on is the route that people should be taking and and what are some of the kind of pitfalls of of each of those approaches yeah unfortunately there's not a clear answer there's there's no perfect process I have to say there's Mm. no process that will be absolutely free of bias because bias is so ingrained in us as humans um there are some psychometrics that are being developed to tackle that but then you also get algorithm bias that can be built Mm. in which we've has been proven through some of the algorithms that exist out there in very popular apps I won't name them so I think what it takes is somebody who knows how to design a process that is most appropriate for the context so and mm. I, I know it's not a black and white answer that you're probably looking for I think there's a lot of merit in taking out names I'm a huge advocate for psychometrics but I have to say they have to be used in the right way they are dangerous if they're not so Mm. um if they're used in the right way in the right context at the right time at the right level of norm group um they can be very very powerful tools and they can really help to tackle bias but they can also hinder bias if they're not used in the right way so Mm. for us psychometrics aren't the right tool to use within good work it just isn't the right tool but I do use psychometrics within my leadership space where the situation is different and actually they are very very valuable so it's not a one-size-fits-all and I would encourage any organization that is designing a process is to really think about it and if you have organizational psychologists within your organization this is what we specialize in we specialize Mm -hmm. in understanding the impact of bias and the impact and the adverse impact that can happen as a result of your hiring processes. So I would really encourage people to do that. And actually very few people do engage the support of specialists in their design of assessments. You know, I've worked with people who have designed in a dark room an exercise for assessment that is so littered with bias that, you know, it's almost useless having it or dangerous. I always call it, you know, it's you might as well flip a coin when deciding if you're going to hire somebody because they just don't have the predictive validity that you would expect an exercise to have. And so what we're doing at Good Work, um, if you go down the contextual route where you want to know a lot about the individual, um, one of the things that is pivotal to that is having very well-trained assessors, which is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So making sure that assessors, you have more than one assessor seeing somebody and that those assessors are highly trained and that you use the criteria as the deciding factor, not your assessor's view of the person you've got measurable criteria is how you mitigate bias within the more contextual type of assessments yeah so one of the challenges that we come up against quite a lot though is and particularly because we're focused on early careers and entry-level recruitment through good work how do people justify how do organizations justify how do people leaders justify putting the amount of resource and money into creating these processes that are, as you say, like the gold standard for for how you can mitigate bias from an assessment model. When budgets are tight, time is short, what is the right answer there? Because I think we frequently come up with the challenge of, well, that all sounds great, but realistically, no one's ever going to fund it. No one's ever going to do it because it's too difficult, it's too expensive, it's too complicated. Yeah, and this is the obviously the story of my life, really, in terms of working <laughs> with organisations to get them to see the benefit of doing this. And 
really it's about slowing down to speed up and and spending money to save money you know organizations that I work with are organizations that are thinking long term they're not in that short-term chaotic hiring space or if they are they know they want to get out of it so you know you do need to design the process well and then it can run itself and you know that you're going to get people that are as close a fit to your role as possible so it does speed up the process if you do it well but you need to take the, t- the time and also to invest the money to save money later on. Because a really well-designed assessment process will save you money because you will match better people to your roles. They're more likely to stay. They're more likely to be engaged. Um, attrition goes down, you know, all those statistics. But if you're a short-termist leader, that won't matter. And that's, you know, something that I've had to, to work with in my practice is that actually if I'm working with, if there's a leader or a company that want me to do a half-baked process I'll say that's it's not right for me you know that's Mm -hmm. not the right opportunity for me I'll work with leaders who want to and companies that want to change what they do and they're willing to put the time in and the investment in yes I understand that when you're hiring usually there's a there's an urgency to it but actually that urgency can come at a huge cost that mm-hmm. I need to hire somebody yesterday. And then you you go and you literally pluck someone off the street because you haven't got time to do the right, uh, a fair and, uh, and robust assessment process. Organizations will just pay the ultimate price because that person either won't perform or they'll leave, you know. So to people that work in this space, it feels obvious, but I know for leaders who are used to that chaotic last minute hiring without doing the proper work up front around design but yeah ultimately the organizations that invest in this will will do better you know and they'll save money in the long run do you think it's possible for short-termist leaders to be persuaded that there is a better path like is that something that you as somebody who specializes in this space ever put time and energy into is actually you know is it worth trying to coach difficult leaders around to this way of thinking or is it best to let them run their course and and put your energy elsewhere I will always try to influence in this space because Mm -hmm. ultimately the people that pay the price are the employees of these organizations and one of my missions in well my mission in Equalital is to make the world of work a better place and you don't do that by just speaking to leaders who get it Um, But there'll be some who don't need much convincing. You know, the the thing about what I talk about is it's heavily backed by data. Mm -hmm. And usually there's leaders who just haven't given it much thought. And actually, if you do present them with the data and a better way of doing things, you know, that's all they need. There are some then that obviously even with presented with the data through their own perhaps leadership biases around speed and chaos maybe still don't see it and in that case you know it's very hard to to be able to do the right thing um and so that is the that is the time where I have to really consider whether I work with a a client where I can actually have an impact because that's what I'm here to do I'm here to have an impact and not to tinker I don't want to tinker with things I want to have huge impact on organizations and to do that you really do need to have leaders who are open-minded or at least willing to rethink what they've done previously so some you can convince and some you won't and you can't have an impact in that that space yeah it it makes me think of a prospective client we had a good work a couple of months ago who um 
just wasn't convinced by the idea that you have to pay interns, um, which is arguably not uh, legal. Um, in fact, not arguably not legal. It's it's not legal. And, you know, in that situation, it was it was worth walking away in the end. But um, it can be a difficult one. And I think we often work with startups and businesses that are scaling and starting to take on entry level talent for the first time. That's something as, as good work that that we're quite focused on. But you can often see that there's a bit of a glamorization of that chaos as part of that process. You know, when a business is growing, it's like the idea that building the plane while flying it is, yeah. is fun or is like a good thing to do. And it means that everything's going really well. What would you say to people who have that mindset about the impact that that has on your culture and ultimately the impact that's going to have on your growth? I think usually people who are uh, attracted to those chaotic organizations, I'd argue that they're actually attracted to pace, not chaos, because chaos is costly. Chaos is very, very costly. And if you're in startup mode, you cannot throw money away. It's, you know, I've worked with corporates who they've got enough cash to make a few mistakes and to be a bit chaotic and throw a bit of money away. If you're in scale-up mode, you cannot afford to be throwing money away unnecessarily because that is going to impact your growth. So I'd say you can be very pacey as an organization. You can still have that ability to get excited by the pace at which you're working without the chaos. And if you're attracted to the chaos, then I'd say to founders, calculate the cost of that. And how could that money be better invested? I'm really interested in the scale up space, actually, because I think founders who, for example, have just gone round through a round of funding and they've got to grow from maybe 30 to 300 people, that is the most exciting time to get in. Because when you work with corporates, you've got to unpick legacy systems and structures actually when you're working with founders on that scale-up mission there's no unpicking necessary so you can do it really quickly you can just put in a best practice process and usually founders are super open-minded to you know quite modern systems and structures and I mean they don't want systems and structures they want something that's really efficient really human usually I find the argument there isn't making it more human and making it more making it speedy it's actually speed to a corporate is different to speed to a scale-up and actually I think the conversation is different with founders but I think that's a space that I'm really interested in because if you can get into those organizations that are scaling quickly set them up in the right way from the beginning and then you can sell the fact that you're pacey and that you hire Mm -hmm. the best people because you've got the best process I think that is a huge sell to an organization that's scaling I heard somebody use the expression the other day, minimum viable bureaucracy as being a key factor of that scale up journey. And I, I totally agree. And I think it's one of the things that's, that's really exciting is that opportunity, you know, having worked in a big corporate with lots of legacy structures and processes, that opportunity to just build stuff based on what makes sense, as opposed to the way it's always been done is so appealing. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was at Good Work, we focus on early careers. We focus on supporting young people who perhaps don't have access to opportunity to make a great start to their careers. But one of the challenges we often come up against is organizations who feel that getting involved in the early stages of of people's careers is not their job, right? If they're a small business, they're a growing business, they don't have they say they don't have time for early careers, they don't have capacity for it. 
Do you think that that's an error? Do you think that that's a mistake? And if so, what is the argument for bringing in young, fresh talent and molding it with your organization as it grows, as opposed to just relying on experienced hires for the foreseeable? Yeah, it's a really good question because actually I think it comes back to again that short-termist versus Mm long-term thinkers uh, leaders you know those that are long-term thinkers and are thinking that their organization is going to be huge and they're ambitious and they've got big plans then I imagine that growing somebody from an early stage of their career could be quite appealing because they're thinking about what that could mean for them because they've actually you know, been able to shape that person's understanding of business, they've aligned them to their mission, you know, that would be one of the things as a founder, is do they align to the mission that we've, we've got, and actually, we can teach you the rest, like like you said, you know, there's a lot of things that a small organization might require from people, but is it knowledge based, can they learn it relatively quickly, so mm-hmm. again, it's not a clear cut answer, but actually, as a small and scaling business, can you afford to only hire really experienced people because they come at a cost mm-hmm. and hiring less experienced people, but people with huge potential, they do come at a cost because you have to develop, you have to invest time to bring them up to speed, but it's two different ways to bring great talent into your business. And I think as a founder, I would advise not cutting off either option. So I think, there's huge value in it, but you can't do it lightly. You do have to consider the investment in time and development that it takes. There was a job I found the other day that as part of their benefits, they gave hundreds of pounds a month for development and people could choose what they spent that on, whether it was buying books Mm -hmm. or online courses or whatever that is, but baking that into the actual employee value proposition, I thought was very clever because it says, yeah, here you learn and that's an expectation and that we're going to invest in that learning and you can have autonomy over how you learn and what you learn and I thought you know that's a great way of bringing people that are less experienced or less knowledgeable on a certain topic into your business but actually having the funding set aside already for them to invest in that so the person you get two years later is totally different to the person you hire on day one. Jess, I've just got two more questions for you before I let you go. The first one is, as a part of the Good Work team, what is the part of the vision that you are most excited about or what thing would you like to see Good Work achieve over the next five or so years that would really make a tangible difference on the way that we attract, retain talent? I think it's that message of redefining routes to careers and it's the very early bit it's not once you're in it's getting organizations to actually think and challenge the war on talent lie that we've been telling everybody Mm -hmm. for so long or that you know the recruitment industry has ridden on for so long actually I'd love to see that totally challenged and organizations coming to good work and saying, I want a different way of talent coming into my business. That's when I think we've been successful, when there's a real pull on our company. Um, I think you're building something great. And I think at the moment, you've got to convince leaders that it's worthwhile. And I think there'll be a time, I hope that that flips and organizations come to you. And I think that that'll be the real determinant of success for good work. 
I can't wait for that day because we were talking before we started recording about the business development versus operations bit. And I am definitely somebody who would quite like to never do any business development ever again. So why I started a business is really a mystery, but we are where we are. (laughs) Just my final question is if there was any further reading that you would ask somebody to do a book or a podcast perhaps that you would recommend that has influenced the way that you think or the work that you do what would it be I haven't given this enough thought but I listened to a podcast literally I think it was two weeks ago it was Diary of a CEO now some of those I really love and some of them I'm, I'm less excited by but there was one by the founder of Pret okay I can't remember his name, but seek out that episode because I thought his view on life and culture and leadership of Pret and how he started Pret was fascinating. And it really got me thinking. And he talks about that short-termist, long-term leader thought processes. So I would say anyone who's listened to this and thought that they took some nuggets of information away that they thought were useful you would probably really take a lot from that episode of that podcast thank you Jess it's been so lovely talking to you today thank you for coming on the good work podcast thanks for having me see you soon thank you for listening to the good work podcast if you enjoyed this episode make sure to share it with friends and colleagues leave us a review and check you're subscribed we'll be taking a break as we work on season two and focus on the launch of our early careers program But in the meantime, you can listen back to this season or visit us on goodwork.org.uk to find out more about our work. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make work fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. Thank you for listening. We will be back soon.